0: I, I didn't need correcting. Yeah. The shutter. Is out? Order! Yeah. Is out? Order! Let's start off as we need to go on. We should see a better future. It's, it's not a
1: competition who can show the loads.
2: Hello and welcome back to the Left Wingers podcast. I'm Ross. I'm Brandon.
1: And I'm Kathleen.
2: This week we're delighted
1: to be joined by Carwin Jones, who served as First Minister of Wales from 2009
2: to 2018 and is currently a member of the Welsh Senate.
1: We're going to be chatting to Carwin about his time as First Minister, devolution and Welsh politics. So, Carwin, thank you for joining us. Uh, We have a bit of a silly first question for you. Um, But as in Wales, as in England, as in a lot of places around the world, pubs are closed. So when you finally get back to a pub, what's your first order?
0: There's a pub not very far away from me that's been the Welsh Cider Pub of the Year for many, many years. It does draft cider. Uh, It's called Plough and Harrow. And I will want, I'd like to go there on a, a warm evening and have a pint of draft cider. Don't have too many because it's about seven, eight percent. So it has to be treated with respect.
2: Yeah, that's what I look forward to. So, Carmen, how did you first get involved with the Labour Party?
0: Well, I, I first joined the party in 1987. Uh, when I was a sixth former, the miners' strike was on, and I came from a background, a mining background. I didn't live in a mining town, but from a mining background. And I just hated what the Tories were doing. Uh, I hated seeing, you know, posh public school-educated Tories, you know, abusing hard-working minors. And that's what led me into Labour politics. I joined the Labour club when I went to university in 1985. I joined the party proper in 87. For me, the party was just the closest vehicle for, for, for my views. You can never agree with absolutely everything when you join a political party, but certainly the, the Labour party. Uh, has always been the closest party. Obviously, because I've been in it now for so long uh, to my views, and uh, it was the miners' strike that brought me in. It was, you know, it's difficult to imagine these days what it was like thirty-five years ago, thirty-six years ago now. But it was a, an appalling time, and it, you know, what I saw made me want to get involved to try to stop it happening again.
2: And, you're from Wales, I'm from Scotland, two devolved nations, and Wales have managed to hold on to power. Scotland have completely collapsed. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, Roger Morgan before me, and myself, took the, the conscious decision that we had to keep appealing to the, the biggest group of voters, and they were the, the devolutionists, who not call themselves that, but they were the ones in their red shirts, you know, supporting the Welsh football and rugby teams. They were the ones who believed in having a welsh parliament but they weren't convinced of independence i think what happened in scotland was that those people went to the smp and even though they weren't convinced for independence then they became convinced of independence what we did was we we were quite happy to you know, embrace our welsh identity quite happy to uh wave the flag when we needed to and we didn't see that as nationalism we just saw it as an expression of identity and we weren't prepared to leave those to abandon those voters to apply Cymru, which is what would have happened if we'd gone down that way and, and that's that's what we did basically we devolution and left the rocky ground of independence to others uh you know things just not quite as they are now in Wales as they were then but that's certainly what we, we did and secondly of course you, you, you have to show people that you, you deliver on promises i mean you can you can wave as many flags around as you want but if you're useless in government then people won't vote for you uh so it was really important for us to produce manifestos that were eye-catching that people could identify with, but really important to deliver on them. Because once you start failing to deliver on your promises, it's it's impossible to get your reputation back.
2: And you mentioned delivering on promises in government. What would be your, your proudest achievement in government?
0: You know, a lot of people have asked me that, and I think the one achievement that stands out is the Human Transplantation Act. What that did in Wales was change the consent regime for organ donors or so elsewhere in the UK. I, you have to opt in. In Wales, you have to opt out. It's assumed that you're uh, consenting uh, to donate your organs uh, unless you specifically say you don't want to. It's a soft opt-out, you know, where fa- families are really upset and they don't want that to happen, then, you know, it doesn't happen. But what it does mean, is all those people out there who, you know, say to me, I would have no problem with somebody taking my organs. Uh, people are a bit fussy about their corneas, but no problem with that. Uh, they never get round to it. So it means that there are now literally... People walking around alive, not just in Wales, because you know the, the organs are available across the UK because it's a UK pool. There are people walking around alive because of that legislation. I don't think you can ask for more than that.
1: So a little bit of a question about your journey. You spoke about coming into labor politics. When did you decide that you wanted to be the first minister? And <laughs> briefly, what was kind of the process to get to kind of get you there? What what kind of happened between you joining the party and you becoming first minister.
0: Well, I mean, I didn't have ambitions to be first minister in 1987 because there wasn't such a position. But uh, no, I mean, what, what I did, my journey was this what I didn't want to do was go straight into politics. I wanted to do something else first. Now I always give people that advice. You know, if you want to stand as an elected representative, do something else first that brings you in contact with people, that helps you to deal with people's problems, you see a bit of life because you can't be taught that you've got to pick that up and what I did was I and was a barrister a criminal barrister I could regale you with tales from my 10 years doing that and you saw all manner of things in that job you know people think oh a barrister very posh but actually you, you, in the criminal world you see a lot of things and that was good training in how to communicate with people so they understood you it was good training in terms of trying to solve problems for people it was an eye-opener in terms of the world that, that some people live in. And I took that experience with me. When I was 32, I was elected, I was 28 as a councillor. I was 32 when I became was then an Assembly member. You know, At that point, you haven't got ambitions at that point. You're just glad to be there. You know, the, Roger Morgan was the first. Mr. Rod, Roger was only younger than my father, so he was in a completely different generation that you, you looked up to as, a, as another generation. Other people started talking about it first, Before I did, you know, I was still very, very young. But there came a point we knew Rodri would stand down at some point. We didn't know when. We knew he would stand at some point between two thousand seven and twenty eleven. And a lot of people approached me and said, "You know, you should stand." What was there then? I was forty two in two thousand nine, so I was still on the young side for the for the job. But yeah, a lot of people approached me, and we had a leadership campaign, and. There we are. I was elected as leader of Welsh Labour and then subsequently as, uh, as First Minister. So, look, I'm not going to pretend you don't have ambition because you do in politics, in any job. You know, one of the oddest things now for me is I've done everything. You know, everything I've set up to do in politics in terms of contributing, I've done. Uh, and you're know, looking at finding other things to do is, is can be a challenge once, once you're in that position. But yeah, I, I, did, I did want to be First Minister. You know, around right about yeah, when, when I knew Rodri was going, I, I had no desire to sort of push Rodri out at all. There was nothing that at all. Rodri was my you know, father in politics, almost, somebody I looked I looked up to. But anyway when Rodri went, yeah, the, the, I, I wanted to go for the position. And more importantly, other people were saying it as well. It's one thing to, to want to do something yourself, but it's another thing to have the support of other people. You know, they're the people who are the best judges of whether you should stand or not. You're not the best judge.
1: Just to follow up on... So on the back of that, you were saying your kind of advice for young people is to get another career or to do something else before you go into politics. And you are speaking, you know, in your 40s, you were kind of yeah. doing a lot of things in politics. And relatively speaking, that's actually quite young. So I just kind of wanted to expand on what your advice is for, you know, people listening to this, people interested in Welsh politics, mm. anyone who has a maybe interest in having a career or some kind of activism in the party.
0: What I always say to people, and I'm quite blunt about this, is... The worst path to politics is to uh, have a politics degree, then go and work in a, in a political environment which doesn't involve contact with members of the public and then stand for election. You are not prepared. You are not prepared. You will know a lot about the theory of politics. You know a lot about the history of politics. You'll know a lot about the, the comings and goings, the gossiping, the, 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 the sharp elbows of politics and you know, his part of politics. What you won't know, which is the bread and butter of a politician's job is how to represent people, uh, how to sit in a constituency surgery and deal with their problems. When so people come to you with, with serious issues. When someone comes to you and says, this, this happened to me, I'm going to be evicted in two hours. Can you help me? Now, that's you don't you can't learn that unless you learn it on the job. And that's why I always say to people, if you're in your 20s, do something where you where you work with the public get that experience it'll make you a better politician when the time comes there's no rush you know it's not as if if you don't get elected as a, you know, as a politician by 2025 you're, you're finished it's not that's not the way the world works everybody's in a rush when they are younger i know that but believe me you will be a far better you'll be far better prepared for the world of politics if you if you do something else first that enables you to learn the skills you need to deal with people people will vote for you if they think that you have empathy, if they think that you can solve their problems, and you will only be able to, to obtain those skills if you work out there with the public uh, in a world that isn't dominated, in a job that isn't dominated by politics, and then take that experience with you. that That's the strong advice I always give.
2: One of the reasons we wanted you on is you're one of the very few people in the UK who have run a devolved administration. We've touched on your time in government, but you know the flaws of devolution, you know where it works. What would you like to see out of Labour's Constitutional Convention, which Gordon Brown is leading?
0: Uh, I I think the UK is in trouble. I always said, I said it for years, that a bad Brexit carried with it the seed of the UK's own disintegration, and that's exactly what's happened. Does it mean that all is lost? No. I think it's difficult in Scotland, because ultimately the SNP keep on winning, And UK governments keep on saying no to a referendum. That's not a sustainable position. I'm not saying the answer should be yes this year, but I don't think it's sustainable, especially when you don't have an alternative. So the the challenge then is to offer an alternative. What is the alternative? For me, it means recasting the UK as a voluntary partnership of four nations. It's a little tricky with Northern Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, And say we are members of this union because we choose to be. We have four different parliaments, now, that doesn't solve the issue of English devolution, but my answer to that would be it would be for the English Parliament to decide what English devolution looked like. And then you have a federal, federal British Parliament that deals with those issues that everybody agrees should be dealt with at that level. So, for example, defence, borders and immigration, the fiscal and monetary union, all, the, all those are areas best dealt with, to my mind, across the whole of the UK. And that, I think, creates stability. So we can say to the people of Scotland, I'm not saying this will work, or whether it's been done in time, You can have a sovereign parliament, it's your decision, but my point would be it is better then to pool that sovereignty with other countries in the UK for everybody's benefit. So Scotland effectively would have a sovereign parliament, but it wouldn't be an independent state. But to me, that keeps the best of both worlds. You know, that sense of pride and identity, which we're seeing the independence movement growing in Wales now, it's up to 30%. It's where it was in Scotland 15 years ago. And it's clear to me that the current UK state, with its fiction of parliamentary so- uh, sovereignty, will not survive. And so it's for us as a party to put forward a radical alternative that's fair, that's redistributive, but that recognises that the old model has gone. The big question is, are we in time?
2: And just to follow up to that, do you have any examples of, of when you wanted to do something in government, but it was an issue that was reserved
0: Well, we had this real problem in Wales. The the devolution model until 2017 was different to Scotland. In Scotland, everything was devolved unless it was specifically reserved to Westminster. Well, we had the exact opposite. So we ended up in court several times. Now, until we know, we've got the same model as Scotland. But, you know, we tried to uh, take over agricultural wages. We ended up in court over that. Was it employment law or was it agriculture? One was devolved, one wasn't. We ended, I mean, the UK government took us to court over the obscure bylaws bill, again, because the settlement was so vague. So that we did end up in a situation where it became more difficult to do things that were pretty uncontroversial because of the devolution settlement. And the problem you got now, particularly with the Internal Market Act, is that it's a recipe for conflict. I've been caught all the time with the Internal Market Act. It's, it's so flawed because it was imposed from Westminster, not agreed by anybody else. You know, it's just that the Supreme Court will be busy dealing with things that, that arise from the internal market. So, the problem the UK has is that devolution has always been seen in Westminster as let's throw powers at various Celts to keep them quiet, That's best if I can describe it. So it's asymmetric. It's not. There's no real there's no rhyme or reason to it. Nobody sat down and thought, "Well, how does this work for the union as a whole?" You know, how does it how does it work in terms of the relationship between Westminster and, and the devolved parliaments? It was all ah. Scotland might vote for independence. Let's throw something at Scotland, the vow. Let's throw something at Scotland without thinking about the problems it caused for us in Wales. It enormous problems for us in Wales. Because people are saying to me, oh, that's it then, is it? Scots threaten independence, they get a lot of money. Well, you know, people, why, why do we do the same? I, I had that. And it was all about, you know, Scotland, and it lets to be focused on Scotland without thinking about what it means for everyone else. And my, my view would be the approach should be, right, let's sit down, all of us, and say, right, how, how is this going to work for everyone, rather than... Let's throw this at Scotland and throw this at Wales and throw this at Northern Ireland and hope it all goes away, which is what, what's happened so far.
1: To follow up on that, I think one of the major differences that we've seen in kind of terms of devolution in the past year has been Wales, the Welsh government response to COVID and the English or the British government's response to COVID. How do you think the kind of Welsh government has, you know, used its powers to deal with the problems of COVID better? Or do you think that 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 was a good thing and that actually Wales should be given more powers, especially in these times, to deal with more things happening in Wales in terms of COVID Mm. that maybe aren't happening in other parts of the UK?
0: Well, the response to COVID is devolved. Public health is devolved. So it was always going to be the case that there were going to be devolved approaches. Now, in an ideal world, there would have been a lot of cooperation at the start, but the UK government decided it didn't want it. It was the UK government's fault, not, not anyone else's fault. Uh, it seems to be a bit better now than it was. But the difference basically between Wales and England is this, that Mark Drakeford and his government in Wales have taken some very unpopular decisions at the time that were proven to be right. And in hindsight, people said, oh, they were right. You know, you have people having a right go at us for the lockdowns we put in place. You had Tories attacking us over it and they did it themselves. So all all Boris Johnson has done is to follow Mark Drakeford. That's what he said. If he, if he, you said. Know, he was always resistant. He was, there was a lot of hubris about, oh, the pubs will open soon. And, and it was disastrous. You know, and isn't it awful in Wales that people are, you know, imprisoned in their own homes? Actually, we were right. You know, and Westminster followed. So I think what I what and people are more aware of devolution than ever before, clearly so, but also support for the Welsh government's approach in poll after poll is far, far higher than support for the UK government's approach in England and people when they ask the question would you prefer Welsh government or UK government in charge of this and it's not oh, for well maybe want want the Welsh government.
1: And that's because the Welsh government has been proactive dealing with the problems that Covid has caused and the English government has maybe been reactive or maybe a bit more backseat driving.
0: I think the major difference has been that there's a significant group in the Tories who never wanted a lockdown in the first place and so Boris Johnson's had to pander uh, to them, the people who talk about herd immunity. We're explaining what that means. Herd immunity means you let the most vulnerable die. That's what herd immunity means. You know, you just let it run through the population. You know, social Darwinism. Run, run mad, uh, and you say, "Well, okay, we're going to lose a few other people, and people are there. We are. It doesn't matter. We'll carry on as before." It's, it's nonsensical. And he's had what twenty percent of his MPs pretty much who were in that category. So he has had to be much more careful in his approach than Mark has been able to do in Wales because nobody thinks that way in Welsh Labour and uh, it's the same in Plaid Cymru they, they, they're in the same position you did have a group in the Tories because they tend to say whatever England does we must do that it's, just, it's like East Germany, the Soviet Union and um, they, they had a group of people who were anti-lockdown, we didn't so as a result Mark was had much more room to, to manoeuvre than Boris Johnson ever did because he had the support of his own members in his own parliament in a way that Boris Johnson didn't, and that's why the response in the in, in England was so slow.
1: I think you spoke in a previous question about leading with empathy and having empathy as a young politician or someone who's a little bit older, and I think that's that's a perfect example of someone who leads with empathy and is a, in a, in a political party or a movement that is empathetic and. Understands the needs of the people, has, you know, it may be external experience, as you were saying earlier, and then somebody, uh, you know, sitting in Downing Street who maybe doesn't have those things.
0: Well, there's a limit to how far bluster and comedy can get you, as Boris Johnson has found. People like a bit of a character in government, but they also want somebody who they think is going to be competent. And I think that's where he's fallen down.
2: I don't know how much detail you'd be able to go into here, um, but just after you became there was the 2010 election, but you very briefly were First Minister, well, we had the Labour government and Westminster. What was the relationship like between your government and Gordon Brown's, and how did that change when David Cameron came in?
0: Well, I only had three months, actually four months as Gordon was Prime Minister. I didn't know Gordon that well. We only had one meeting in that time, and it was, quite, it was quite strange in the sense that it was very, very formal. We went into a meeting, and Gordon and I were sitting looking out with a table between us and flowers on the table. It's the sort of thing you see in China quite often. It's the standard sort of um, set up for a meeting in China. And we were looking out at our special advisors, which is instead of looking at each other, it was a little bit formal. And um, I, I well remember, you know, Gordon's boys were young. And in the garden, I could see out of the garden in um, in Downing Street, a, a trampoline, and we had the same one for our kids. And, you know, it was all very formal to begin with. And I said, oh, I see, we've got a trampoline out there, Gordon. How are the boys doing? And that was the icebreaker. You know, he chatted away about about the boys and chatted, and that was, you know, that, that was was re, we had a really good meeting as a result of it. But unfortunately, I didn't spend much time with Gordon. I, I speak much more to Gordon now <laughs> than I than I did when he was when he was Prime Minister because that, that's, that's the way things were at the time. David Cameron was, you couldn't trust what he said to you. That was the biggest problem. He'd say something to you, and then go to do the exact opposite. Now, you know, it's unknown in politics, but you expect when you sit down as two heads of government and you agree something that they're actually going to agree it. It was like dealing with, almost like with Trump, in terms of, you know, a, a, an inability to keep to an understanding or keep to an agreement. All Cameron wanted to do was, was, was to hit us in order to hit Ed Miliband. That, that's, 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 what he, that's what he wanted to do. That was the end of it. So it was very difficult to establish any kind of level of trust, which you have to have between governments, despite the politics None of that existed with Cameron. Uh, it existed to an extent with Theresa May when I dealt with her. You know, if you came to an agreement with her, it, 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 the agreement would be kept to. I didn't get that impression of Cameron at all. You know, he was a he was a political operator, and that was it. And and his sole purpose in dealing with us as a government was to find ways of. Of hitting a milliband in terms of what we done.
1: I think you've given away a little secret there, which is good Labour leaders have kids with trampolines. So everyone who wants to be an aspiring leader make sure you uh yes, you you, might, you
0: must if you have kids you have to have a trampoline with yeah with a guard <laughs> around it. That's 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 the common factor. Look at what look at the history books.
1: <laughs> there you go. Um but moving on moving on uh, very slightly so you've recently been elected to Labour's NEC um you know, this is a very—you know—it's a challenging time for the party. We're definitely in a in a in a phase of growth, a phase of movement. What do you define to? What What do you hope to accomplish? And what what will you think to be success?
0: Well, I want to uh, lay the ground for the election of Keir Starmer as prime minister. That's you know, people ask me why you know you're standing with the NEC, you've done anything then? Why Why are you doing that? My simple answer was we've got unfinished business. We don't have a Labour government at Westminster, and that's what I want to work towards. You know. I'm not going to pretend to the, the NEC is a harmonious body at all times because it isn't. There are strong views, but it's always been that way. You know? always, we've always managed to keep th- those those debates within the party, and uh, you know, what we've got elections, important elections coming up in May in Wales and Scotland and across England as well. The last thing we should see is you know some kind of row in the NEC or obsession with our own internal processes. A party that starts to do that becomes a debating society. It isn't a political party. You know, if you don't, if you cannot win power and run governments, you may as well not exist. Uh, and I think we we should never lose sight of that. So whilst we have to have robust debate in the NEC, you know, there are different views; they have to be heard. We have to debate. We have to uh, we have to vote. That's you know a normal part of democracy. What we must never do is find ourselves in a position where that starts to dominate the entire party, and we can't win elections we can't deliver for the people we were you know we joined the party to help uh so that yeah that that basically sums up what I want to do I I want to 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 help steer the NEC and the party in a direction that puts us in a position to win a general election that's that's what we were created to do
1: Do you think that Keir and the kind of shadow team um the shadow cabinet his kind of internal team in the lead of the opposition's office do you think that they've had you know that they're doing well do you think they've had some challenges what's your kind of personal opinion and if you had a couple of minutes with Keir what would you you know if you just had like a two minute coffee with him what would you say to him
0: well first of all I think that everyone is doing well secondly I think it's been hugely difficult for Keir because of course the whole political landscape has been dominated by Covid it's been very difficult to talk about anything else lately I mean even overshadowed Brexit which you know none of us thought would be possible uh, a year ago and what we've seen across the world is that governments who are in charge during Covid become more popular it's been that way in Wales it's been that way in Scotland it hasn't been that way at Westminster hasn't been that way you know we haven't seen ever since Cummingsgate we've seen the Conservative vote drop substantially and our vote has risen we're not quite there yet where we want to be but it's come a long way in a short time I think what he did this week was really important. It's you know, I, I think because because people are now beginning to focus on the post-COVID world, he has to set his stall out, and he did that this week. You know, what does labor stand for? What is what is Keir's policy? You know, what, what is Keirism? Like, I'm sure he wouldn't call it that, but uh, Starmerism. I mean, he would it's the last thing he described it as being. But people want to know now, okay, what does Keir Starmer stand for? What are his policies? What does he want to do? in the UK. And I think the timing was right this week in terms of doing it. So if I'd have, you know, I speak to Keir occasionally, and I, I don't <laughs> bother him every week. Uh, and I, that's exactly what I would have said to him. and said, okay, I think the time's come now where you can comfortably start to talk about, you know, what you want to do in the future, because the, the people are started, it's just starting now to go beyond COVID. A month ago, you couldn't have done it. People would have said, well, hang on a second, we're in the middle of a crisis here. What are you talking about? We'll deal with that first. But I thought the timing was right this week. And I think uh, it's the start of something exciting for him and for us as a party.
1: Do you, off the back of that, do you feel positive when you look towards the May elections or do you feel uncertain given what's happened in the past year?
0: I feel positive. Uh, I think we will do better uh, than we've done in the past few elections. I don't think we're quite where we we need to be, Mm. uh, but it's a long way back. We're on the right track. That's the important thing. Uh, And we have to be disciplined as a party uh, in order to win elections. You know, if we spend our time publicly fighting with each other, people will say, what a shower. You know, I want to vote for them. Uh, and that's the lesson we've always known. I remember the party in the 80s. It, you know, it was an endless internal battle. And people said, I'm no you. Uh, when Neil Kinnock started to get to grips with it, Neil, you know, in many ways, Tony Blair reaped the benefit of what Neil had done. And the hard yards that Neil had put in to say, look, if, you, if, you, if you're only here for, you know, we're here to win elections. If you're not part of that, don't be part of this party. Uh, and it's, I think that's an important message. You know, we all have to, regardless of our views, there'll be people there who are, you know, strongly supportive of, of Jeremy Corbyn, but it, it, it doesn't matter who you, where you stand in terms of your politics within the party. We are We are one big, broad umbrella. When elections come, we pull together. And when we have debates, we have them amongst ourselves, not in public. That's the most destructive thing that any political party can do.
2: And one final question: um, the May elections, you've announced you're going to be standing down from the Welsh Parliament. What's your plans after that?
0: <laughs> well, you know, people ask me why. You know, I'm fifty-four, I'll be fifty-four at the time of the election, which I know for you three is ancient. But for, you know, it's, it's quite young to be standing down. I mean, two things. First of all, I never saw politics as a career. You know, something I wanted to do in my 60s and 70s. I I thought, you know, I I see people in there. I think, well, you know, someone else deserves a shot. You know, someone else deserves a chance. You can't sit there for 40 years. Secondly, I... The tradition is that, you know, if you've been a leader, you don't hang around, you know, election out. You turn to Ted Heath, sit there brooding, staring at Margaret Thatcher. If If you don't stand down the election... After, when you stand down as first minister or prime minister, it looks as if you don't trust your successor. And what your successor doesn't need is to have his or her predecessor sitting there, looking as if they're judging them. And you know, I think that's right. So it's time for me to get out of the way. Now, does that mean I'm finished with politics? Well, no. Who knows what might happen in the future? It's uh, what I've found is that you know, you finish as first minister, and all of a sudden there's a sense of freedom. It's great you know, but the tank starts to fill up again. And, you know, you should start thinking about other things you'd like to do. Who knows? Um, at the moment, I'm doing some broadcasting work, some work, advising businesses. Uh, what else am I doing? Um, I'm, I'm doing some work in terms of writing. So there are a few things that I've, I'm doing at the moment because you know, I've got to make a living. i stand down. I'm tweeting to get a pension. Uh, and who knows? Who knows what will what, happen in the future? But, no, I... I once once you've been involved in politics you can never let go of it it's simply a question of uh how will you contribute in the future I've, I've made my contribution as a member of the welsh parliament uh it's a question now seeing you know how can i make that contribution in the future and, you know after march my contribution will be as a member of the nec
1: i think i think we're going to have to finish on a on an important but divisive question do you think wales will win the six nations
0: we are three red cards away from another grand slam <laughs> that's the, we have a game next next Saturday for the Triple Crown I mean uh, none of us can believe it you know I, I'm, I'm a, big, a big rugby fan you know and uh, you yeah, know we, we, we had no great hopes for this team but well here we are who knows it's a funny old game who knows
1: looking
0: likely I mean England at home yeah we could win against England I think France will be the tough team France are a good team especially in Paris that'll be uh, that'll be a really tough nut to crack
2: Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Carwin, thanks for coming on. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our
1: conversation with Carwin Jones. If you want to keep in touch with us, we are on Twitter, Facebook
2: and Instagram. The links are in this episode's description. Keep whinging and we'll see you soon.